0: go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful day to be here. Thank you for this opportunity to study. I pray that you'll guide us as we talk about this most important topic, that you'll give us understanding. And thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Um, before we get started, I put a little acronym up here on the board. And we're going to be coming back to this probably about 150 times between now and the end of the theology um courses. And what I put up here is FAITH, F-A-I-T-H, and it's an acronym. And the reason this is important is because, as we discussed last week, one of the great problems that we have in Christianity today is um, a move to try and reduce to a bare minimum, if not eliminate, um, important theological concepts. We want to include everybody that we possibly can in the Christianity and one of the ways in which you can do that is you just reduce the number of things that people need to believe in order to make them supposedly Christian. And uh, we can't do that. There is an irreducible minimum. When we talk about faith, faith in Christ, faith in God, faith in the gospel, we need to realize that our faith is founded in a series of facts. There are some things you need to know. Faith is not a warm feeling in the pit of your stomach faith is just not believing in whatever christian faith is not belief in a whatever it's a belief in some specifics and those specifics are necessary in order to have eternal life and you can't um... deny certain doctrines and get to heaven and we're going to be talking about some of those our our faith our, our our salvation is founded in facts the facts of christ's life the facts of christ's work on the cross The fact of our condition before God. These are facts that we can't deny. But just knowing those facts is not enough to bring you to faith. Right? I mean, the devils believe and tremble, the Bible says. So not only do you need to believe in facts, you need to affirm that these are valid, true facts. Not only are they a fact of of theology, but they're a true fact of theology. Not only... Does the Bible say Jesus is God? I affirm that that is accurate. That is true. Jesus is God. An affirmation. But that's not enough either. You can believe the facts. You can affirm that those are true facts and still not be a Christian. Because you've got to take the next step. Not only are they true in general, but they are true for me. Internalization. These are valid facts. Yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Yes, I believe he died for the sins of the world. I affirm those are true facts. But then I have to affirm that they are true for me. They are, they are true in my case. But I'm still not a Christian. I'm still not a believer because I have to take the next step, which is I need to trust those facts. I need to believe in those facts. I need to say they're true. They're true for me. And I'm going to put my faith, my trust in Christ. I'm going to put my trust in those are valid facts. And then the H stands for hope, and the hope is not the kind of hope that we think of. I hope that the Cavaliers win the next ball game. Right. That's a hope, right? Well, the biblical hope is not an uncertain hope. The biblical hope is a certain hope. In fact, if you want to think about it, biblical hope is a present certainty of a future reality. It's a present certainty of a future reality. It's not like, well... You know, it talks about our blessed hope. It talks about the return of Christ as being our blessed hope. Does that mean we sort of hope He comes back? But maybe He won't? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means He's coming back. We're just waiting for it to happen. So hope is not an iffy kind of thing in the biblical sense. Hope is a certain thing. All we are doing is waiting for it to happen. And the reason I put this up here is because as we go through the deity of Christ, as we go through the humanity of Christ... We've also hit the Trinity so far. These are facts that you can't mess up. You can't mess these things up and get to heaven. You can't mess up the deity of Christ and get to heaven. You just can't do it. You can't mess up the work he did on the cross and expect to be a Christian. And the problem we have today is that in in a lot of evangelical circles and things like that, we want to include everybody. Um, One of the great problems I had, and I'm going to get in trouble here probably, but with the Promise Keeper movement that that was um, very popular, and probably still is to some extent, is uh, they wanted, a lot of people in the Promise Keeper movement sort of included Catholics as Christians. Now as a Catholic Christian, a true believer, you might have a few there that are, right? But is Catholicism the system of religion, the system, is that Christian? No, it is not. It is not a Christian system. It talks about Christ. It talks about Jesus. But their Jesus is the Jesus that hung on the cross. And for you to get to heaven, he gives you a jump start. But then it's up to you to finish the deal. And if you commit a mortal sin, you're back to square one. You've got to start over again. And it always helps to get on his mother's good side because she'll help you. You know, when the sun gets a little tough on you, mom will come along and sort of sweet-talk him into... So it's not Christian. And, and you ask them, say, well, well, why do you think a Catholic is a Christian? Oh, well, they believe in Jesus. They believe in the deity of Christ. Oh, they do. But they got the wrong work. In fact, there's a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And it was written by Chuck Colson. Um, Bill Bright was in on that from Campus Crusade. And some Catholics, and basically this whole document, with which I have a copy, the whole document basically said, look, we're all Christians. Catholics and evangelicals, we're all Christians because we all believe in Jesus. All right. So we need to quit squabbling about this, these minor points of doctrine. We need to quit squabbling about that and get together and work together for the common Christian good, which is social ills, abortion, you know, those kind of things. A total sellout. Folks, you can't mess some of these facts up. When you talk to a Catholic and they say, "I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I say, "Well, what about his salvation?" Well, you know what, at the moment of my baptism, I've got the infused grace of God, and as long as I keep up and I don't commit a mortal sin, um, when I die, I'll go to Purgatory and I'll get to work off all my personal sins for the next few million or billion years or whatever, and then I'll finally get into heaven. That is a false gospel. That's a false hope. Jesus Christ did not pay part of, the job, part of it. He paid it all. And the work on the cross was finished. It wasn't started. And we have to get these facts down. And I'm going to keep pounding at this.
1: Huh?
0: Okay. Sorry. We'll have the handouts next week. Sorry about that. Um, we, we can't mess these things up. And I'm going to keep harping on this because... It's a great pressure today to try and reduce these things down. There are even some that say, well, you know, I I, I remember a thread going on the internet, are Mormons Christian? And by and large, most of the so-called Christians on this blog or on this, this discussion, this bulletin board, said, well, of course they are. They believe in Jesus. Well, what Jesus do they have? Not this Jesus, not the Jesus of the Scripture. They have a different... Jesus. And that's why when we talk about theological things and we're going to hit some of these things, there are some irreducible things that you cannot deny and call yourself a Christian. You can't deny them. Yes? Evangelicals and Catholics together, the Christian mission in the third millennium. It's probably out on the internet. You can pull up a copy. All right? And, I, and I, it's not, folks, understand something here. When I talk about this, I'm not trying to pick on people. Alright, this is not a pick on people session. This is not a beat up Catholics or beat up Mormons or beat up Jehovah Witnesses. This is, look, we have the scripture that is true and there's a lot of falsity out there and we've got to tell the difference. And we're not doing those people any favors by making them Christians because they believe in a Jesus. You've got to get the right Jesus. You've got to get the right person and work of Christ if you mess that up, you miss heaven. Remember, Jesus asked disciples, well, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Well, you know, they said some of the folks say you're Isaiah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some other prophet. Well, who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the right answer. You've got to get the right answer, folks. So when we talk about this, and we have some irreducibles we've already discovered. The Trinity is... You can't deny the Trinity and call yourself a Christian. You may not understand it, but you can't deny it. Because when you deny the Trinity, who do you deny the deity of? Christ. All right? So you can't deny that. You can't deny the deity of Christ. If He is not God, we're lost. The Scriptures affirm clearly that Jesus is the Son of God and is deity and is God. We don't understand that. We accept that. And the second... And the third thing here, we've got to believe in his full humanity. Now, this is tough, and we're going to get in, the, you're going to have to think for the next three weeks as we work through this. Okay, he's fully God, we've got that established, but how can he be fully God and fully man? How can he be the eternal second member of the Trinity and yet walk around this earth for 33 and so, so many years? and yet die on a cross, but yet he's God. God can't die, but yet Christ died. How do, how do we sort that out? We're going to talk about that. One of the things that the Scriptures clearly affirm is that Jesus Christ is human, fully human. We talk about the full humanity of Christ. He was not part human. He was not partially mankind. And why was it necessary that he be a man? Why did he have to become a man? What's it say in Hebrews? To have our imputed guilt. To be our substitute, he had to be a man. To be our substitute, to be our perfect substitute, he had to be human. Fully human. Alright? So when we talk about the humanity of Christ, we're talking about Christ's full humanity. And how does that humanity start? Well, one of the things that that is important when you talk about the man of Christ is this concept of virgin birth this is an important thing now again there's a lot of push out there to say well you know you don't really need to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian alright yeah you do you can't deny it you can't deny the virgin birth and this is this by the way in, in, this is really theologically important in many respects we're going to impinge not only on the person of Christ here but also on the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of sin, why this is important. Why is Christ's virgin birth important? Well, number one, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15. Anybody want to look that verse up? Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangelion. If you ever see that word out there, the Proto-Evangelion. What is Evangelion? Gospel, right? Proto is... First, So this is the first mention of the Gospel in the Bible. Could somebody read that?
1: And I
2: will put enmity between you and a woman and between your offspring and hers. You will crush your head and you will strike his heel.
0: This is God telling the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and who? The woman. Between her seed and yours. All right, now, what do all of us really understand about the origin of your life? Where did you come from? Where did the seed come from? No. There's only one other option. Man, all right, yeah. All of us came from the union of a man's seed and a woman's egg ovary. We all know that's biology 101. All right, that's where we all came from. But what is this saying about this coming Messiah, this coming redeemer, this coming one that's going to crush the head of Satan? What's going to where's he going to come from? He's going to be of the seed of what? The woman, not the seed of man, but the seed of the woman. Now, that verse in and of itself is not enough to prove the virgin birth of Christ. But what it does do is it gives us a hint that there is something unique about this particular coming one. And what is he going to do? He's going to crush the head of Satan. And, and the idea there is, that, is you taking your foot, your heel, and stomping on the head of a snake. The snake may bite your heel, it may bruise your heel, but you're going to crush the head of the serpent. And this is the first promise that God made of a coming seed, a coming redeemer, a coming one who's going to take care of the sin problem. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. Isaiah 7.14 A young woman shall conceive and bear a son. Right? That's the promise that is made. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And one of the things, if some of you might have um, translations that... Translate that young woman. Alright? Yeah, the virgin. Alright, the word they're used, Alma, in the Hebrew Bible, could mean virgin or it could mean young woman. Either one of those are acceptable translations. However, when you go to Matthew chapter one, it talks about where it quotes this verse, it uses the Greek word Parthenos. The Greek word Parthenos is virgin. Alright? There's no mistaking in the Greek what it is. It's a virgin that shall conceive and bear a son. Now, how is a virgin going to conceive and bear a son? It's got to be by a miracle, doesn't it? Because by definition, what is a virgin? One has not had any physical relationship. The only way this could happen is through a miracle, a miracle of God. Jeremiah 31.22 also talks about the virgin birth and if God did enter history we would expect him to enter in a miraculous way right? if he did come into our space time universe we would expect him to come differently but there are also theological reasons Christ had to be born of a virgin and that has to do with Romans 5 the entire chapter of Romans 5 really talks about this if you all want to turn there um, We'll look at this chapter. Romans chapter five. This is a very important chapter in understanding this whole concept of salvation, sin and um, Christ. But what Romans, the upshot of what Romans five is telling us is that Christ had to bypass the imputed guilt of Adam. All right. So let me let me explain what that means and then we'll go look at the text and I'll show you where we get that. All right. When you look at yourself, you're a sinner three separate ways in three separate dimensions. You're a sinner. All right. Number one, you're a sinner because you commit sins. Right. We all commit sins. So that makes us a sinner. All right. That's one aspect of our sinful nature. The second aspect of our sinful nature is that when you were born, when you were conceived, God imputed. What does impute mean? To credit. To credit to an account. Okay, It's an accounting term, actually. Paul uses an accounting term, an ancient accounting term to talk about this, the impute, impute, imputed, imputation. When you were conceived, God imputed the guilt of Adam to you as though you committed that sin in the garden. You say, that's not fair. Don't go down that path. All right, Because later on in Romans 5, is, it says, um, because Adam's sin is imputed to you, Christ's righteousness can be imputed to you. All right? We're going to sort that out. But when you were conceived, God imputed directly... The sin of Adam to you. So by virtue of your birth, you are a sinner like Adam was because you have the imputed guilt of Adam. We could call that original sin. All right. But you're also a sinner in a third way, a third third aspect. And that is you have passed to you through your parents a sinful um, predilection. We call that pollution. All right. You don't teach children the sin. It comes naturally to them. It doesn't come naturally to them because they have the imputed guilt of Adam. It comes naturally to them because they have the sin of the the rebellious nature passed to them by their parents who got it from their parents, who got it from theirs, who got it all the way back to Adam. Alright? You understand those three aspects. So when you look at yourself, you're a sinner three ways. Number one, you're a sinner because God imputed the guilt of Adam to you directly. We call that federal headship. We'll get into that later. But it's it's as though we were all there in Adam, in the garden. And when Adam fell, we all fell with him. Because we would have done the same thing. You say, no, I wouldn't have. Yeah, you would have. You would have done the same thing. All of us would have fallen. We're also a sinner because we have, from our parents, a sinful flesh. A, a flesh that that causes us to be Sinful, to be selfish, to want our way. We get that from our parents. And we are sinners because we because of the first two things. We commit acts of sin, which makes us even more... It really confirms the fact that we are sinners. Alright? So we're sinners three ways. Now, in order for Christ to become fully human, he had to be born, but if he had a human parent, two parents, a human father and a human mother, what would he have also had? Original sin, and he would have original pollution. He had to not have those. He could not have those. That doesn't make him any less human. It doesn't make him any less a man. It's just that because he bypassed the pollution that came from Adam and the imputed guilt of Adam, because he bypassed that, he did not have a sin nature. He did not have a flesh that he had to fight. He had flesh in the sense of his, his material existence, but he did not have a sinful, fallen flesh that we all have. All right, that we need to fight. He had to bypass that. We're going to talk about that. We're going to get there. Because one of the questions, and that's a good question, because some people say, well, then what about his temptation, right? I mean... If he's not sinful, he doesn't have a sin nature, then how could he be tempted? No, it isn't. Temptation is not sin. And here's another way to understand that whole concept, all right? And we'll talk about it more when we get there. But because Christ did not have a sinful nature, what force did temptation have on him? He had a lot, right? Temptation is not an infinite force. You understand that? When we are tempted, that's not an infinite force. In other words, temptation is not the kind of thing that you have to give in to. Do you have to give in to temptation? No. No, you don't, right? So therefore, it's not an infinite force. Because if it was an infinite force you have to give in. Following
1: that?
0: It's not an infinite force. So when Christ was tempted, how much force do you think Satan threw at him? everything he had and he didn't fall I use the example if you have a tornado and you have a piece of straw you have a two by four and you have a steel beam sunk into the ground which which one are they all going to feel the force of the wind? are they all going to feel the same force? what's going to happen to the straw? it's going to blow away what's going to happen to the two by four? it'll split what happens to the steel? nothing why? because it's not within the nature of the steel to bend all of them Receive the full force of the wind, but the steel cannot bend because it's not within its nature. Did Christ feel the full force of Satan's temptations? Absolutely. But he could not bend because he was God. It doesn't lessen the fact that he felt the temptation. It was a valid temptation, but he could not bend because of his nature, because of who he was. So, does, so when when Hebrew says he was tempted in all points like as we are, you can believe that that's what it means. He was. Christ knows what temptation's about. He knows. He knows what we face. He knows the full force of that. And by the way, here's the other thing: Christ had Satan personally attend to him. Any of us have Satan personally attend to us? No. In fact, you know, quite honestly, folks, we need to understand this. You sin very well apart from Satan and demons. You do pretty good on your own. You don't need Satan and the demons to cause you to sin. In fact, if you look at the scripture, when it talks about um, us dealing with sin, it never tells you, okay, figure out what Satan is up to and try to counter him. It doesn't say, um, find out what demon is bothering you and bind it. It always talks about your flesh. Because that's how Satan tempts you. Satan tempts you through your flesh. The world tempts you through your flesh. And you sin through your flesh. So you'll sin very well without Satan anywhere near you. You don't need Satan. You know, say, well, every time I'm tempted, the devil's, you know, causing me to sin. No, he's not. It's you. Now, Satan might send a demon to tempt you. And in fact, there are examples. I mean, remember Christ told Peter that Satan wanted to have him and sift him like wheat. So yes, can Satan, can the demons tempt us? Sure they can. But every time you sin, you don't have a demon walking around with you all day long trying to get you to commit an act of sin all day long. It's your flesh that you need to fight. And in fact, when all of the scripture passages that talk about us and our sanctification, Paul again 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 says, look to your flesh. It's your flesh that's causing you to fall into temptation. That's where you need to attention to don't worry about what Satan is up to because you couldn't figure it out anyways but you can deal with your flesh
2: mm-hmm.
0: First John okay. 2.15 And talks about the lust of the flesh the lust of the lu- let's see it talks about the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life now what do all three of those have in common the lust of the flesh is my flesh. The lust of the eyes is what I see that I, flesh, want. The pride of life is what makes I, flesh, feel good. So it's all flesh. It's your flesh. All right. So how do you deal with your flesh? You kill it. We're going to talk about that in later sessions. You have to mortify the deeds of the flesh. First, or Colossians 3. Yes. Three simple ways is, number one, you have original original sin, which is the imputed guilt of Adam to you. You secondly have original pollution, which is your fallen propensity, your flesh. Your sinful nature, if you want to think about it in those terms. And the third thing is you commit personal acts of sin. And so whatever salvation God offers has to deal with all of those aspects of our sinfulness okay so let's look at Romans chapter 5 I'm trying to think where we want to let's pick up in verse 12 okay because we pick up in verse 1 I'll be preaching all day and we'll never get to verse 12 therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay? What's it saying? Death entered the world through the sin of one man. You say, well, I thought Eve was the one that ate. No, Eve ate first. But when were their eyes open? When Eve ate or when Adam ate? When Adam ate. Right? Because what did that do? That confirmed the rebellion that Eve started was confirmed through Adam. Adam was the responsible party. Guys, it's our fault. Sin's in the world. We ate the fruit that she gave us. All right? So don't go blame Eve all the time. (laughs) I mean, she was deceived, but we knew what we were doing. That's the point. Eve was deceived. There's no doubt about it. But we walked in with our eyes wide open. All right? And it said sin entered the world. So prior to, and think about, there's some neat implications here. If there was no sin in the world, what else would there not be in the world? Death. Well, there goes evolution, right? No evolution because it says sin entered the world through the sin of Adam. If there's no death, there's no engine of evolution to drive all of their theories. That's just an aside. I throw that in for free. But it said death spread to all men because all of sin. How did all men sin? Well, when Adam sinned, they would call that original, original sin, the imputed guilt for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law okay now what is he saying here well he's writing through Jewish context right so in the Jews what is personal sin a violation of what the law Law. okay however when did the law come Moses so you could say well then you know how, how could there be sin in the world if there's no law to violate it right well he answers that here yeah Let's just show us. Yes. But it says here, sin is not counted where there's no... What does it always means sin. This is imputed. So these are... In the, is this sin in general or sin in actions? What sin is he talking about here?
1: Sin.
0: The acts of sin. Right? You can't I can't violate a law if there's no law to violate, right? I can't be caught for speeding if there's no speed limit. Okay? That's that's an axiomatic truth. Alright? So one of the arguments that Paul's talking about here said, now wait a minute. Before the law you know, I can't I can't violate the thou shalt not kill if that was not given that law, if I didn't know about that law, if I didn't have that. if, if I can't violate Have no other gods before me. If I had not had that law yet, I can't violate that. I can't violate this personal act of sin. But the argument, and this is the argument Paul's making, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. How do you know, prior to the giving of the law, that men were sinners? They all died. The wages of sin is death, all right? So whether there was law or not to specify what sin was, all men were sinners because all men died prior to the giving of the law. Does that make sense? So the argument here is that why do you die as a sinner? Do you die because you committed an act of sin? Is that the root cause of your death? No, the root cause is you're a sinner because you sin after the similitude or After the likeness of Adam, you have his original sin on you. Whether you commit an act of sin in your life ever, you're still going to die because the wages of sin is death and you have the imputed guilt of Adam. You start out as a sinner. And whether you commit an act of sin or not is irrelevant because you have the imputed guilt. We're all sinners in Adam. Now, that's sort of bad news, right? Because that leaves us sort of in the spot where, hey, I'm a sinner. I, I have violated God's law. I've, I'm, I'm a sinner by nature, by virtue of my identification with the human race. In fact, if you want to think about it, Romans 5 is telling you one thing. You, everyone in here is going to be identified with one of two atoms. You're going to be identified with the first atom, or you're going to be identified with the second atom. But everyone in here is going to be identified with one of those two Adams. When eternity start, there's going to be a group that's going to be identified by Adam, the first Adam, <coughs> and those who are redeemed by the second Adam. Because that's what Paul gets to here. But the gift, free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, one of the theological things you need to work through as you go through this passage, is you have to understand the word all and many have a context to them. Alright? And he's using a literary device here. When he says many died, does that mean many as a, as there are some that didn't? Follow what I'm saying? The first use of many, for in Adam, it says here, for if many died through one man's trespass, does that many mean that there's some that didn't? No, it means all, right? He's using a literary device. Many, many. He's trying to balance them out. As in Adam, many died. In Christ, many are made alive. Alright? If you follow what I'm saying there, you gotta be careful. Because this is where you gotta bring in the other passages of Scripture. You can't say, well, this is saying that there's some guys that, or some people that did not have the imputed guilt of Adam. No, that's not what it's saying because there's other passages that say they did. We need to understand it in the literary context of what Paul is saying. And he's trying to make a, a point here. In Adam, many died. In Christ, many are made alive. All right? And it says here, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man... Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? Well, as in Adam, death reigned, In Christ, life reigns. Now, how is it possible for Christ life to reign? Well, Christ had to bypass the imputed guilt. Christ had to bypass the imputed pollution, the original pollution. He had to be sinless. The only way to be sinless is he could not be of the line of humanity he could not be identified with the first Adam by virtue of his birth with a human father. That's what makes him different. Okay? And it says here, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now that all is all, right? One trespass condemned us all, so one act of righteousness leads to just justification of life for all men. Now that doesn't mean all in the sense that everybody in the, the whole world gets saved. But as an Adam, his one sin produced death for all, and Christ, his life of righteousness, can produce life for. And the whole point there is, is, if you want to say, well, it's not fair that Adam's guilt was imputed to all of humanity, you'd also have to say it's not fair that Christ's righteousness can be imputed as well, right? And what Romans 5 is talking about is this imputation. So what happens at your new birth? What happens when you are born again? What God does is God takes your imputed guilt, the guilt that you have by virtue of being a human, by virtue of you being identified with that first Adam. He takes that sin, that, that guilt, and he imputes it to Christ. And then he takes Christ's righteousness and he imputes that to you. So therefore... All of us in here who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, who are we identified with? The second Adam, not the first. So do you have, right now, as a human in here, do we have original sin? No. No. I have pollution. Do you understand the difference? I have pollution.
2: pollution.
0: Yeah, it's called flesh. That's your flesh. So in the act of salvation, what God does is God identifies you permanently with Christ. And by the way, the New Testament talks about this as our old man, and it says the old man is crucified. The, the verb tense there means it's done, it's gone. Your old man is gone. You don't have an old nature if by that you mean your identification with Adam. You do have an old nature if by that you mean your original pollution. Do you understand the, the, the difference here? And that's the only way you really can to understand Romans 5. When I became a believer, my, all my sin, every, every sin I would ever commit... Was imputed to Christ, and his righteousness was imputed to me. But I still have my flesh. I still have my fallenness that I struggle with. And that's where Romans 6 and 7 come in, where Paul is complaining those things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Why am I doing this? Because I'm identified with Adam? No, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer that. But I still have this fallen propensity for sin called flesh that I've got to deal with. Now, it sounds like we're splitting hairs, but I'm trying to make it clear so you understand this this virgin birth because it impinges on this and understand what happens when we become a Christian. I am forever identified with Christ. Irreversibly, his righteousness is imputed to me. So when God looks at Alan Schaefer right now, what does God see? The righteousness of Christ imputed to me. That's what He sees. And I can't out sin that. I can't. I can't commit any act of sin that would that would cause that to be reversed. I mean, at the end of Romans five, you know. It said the law came to increase the trespass for sin abounded. Grace did much more abound. Do you understand you can't out-sin God? Some people say, well, you know, if I commit a sin, he might not like me. Well, you might have judgment because of that. You might be chastened by the Lord. But can you sin to the point that God says you're more bothered than you're worth? No, because he knew what you were going to do anyways you understand that? When you became a believer, God knew every sin you would ever commit and He forgave you anyhow. So can you out-sin Him? No. But if you're a true believer, do you want to sin? No. Can you understand the grace?
1: So it's not that we're only judged on our our original sin, but but God sees us as pure because we are... um,
0: identified with Christ
1: but the, sins have been taken the eternal penalty
0: the penalty for our sin has been paid for none of us in here will ever face God for a sin that we've committed and be judged for it that was all nailed to Christ on the cross That's yes when God looks at me when God the Father looks at me he sees the righteousness of Christ all right that's my standing there's two standing and state. my standing for God is one of holiness. my state goes up and down, right and that that's why you know when it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. the Bible is not saying that I don't sin. it's not saying that, and it's not saying that when I commit sin it's not important. it's not saying that either because so we understand Romans six and seven, it's clear from there that yes. Just because I'm under grace, should I sin? May it never be. God forbid. How, how, how am I that's dead to sin? Should I live in it? I shouldn't. I shouldn't want to sin. But when you look at those three aspects of our sinful condition, the original um, sin, the imputed guilt of Adam, when I became a believer, that imputed guilt was laid to Christ's account. His righteousness was laid to my account. So when God looks at me, I'm identified with Christ, not with the old Adam. My old nature, if you mean, and again, what I mean by that, the old man, the identification with Adam, that is gone. That is gone. I still have my flesh. Now, how is God going to deal with your flesh? He's going to transform it, isn't he? He's going to transform it either at the moment of death. Now, when you die and you go into the presence of the Lord, are you going into the presence of the Lord with a sinful nature? No, you're not. No, you're not. And in fact, in Romans chapter 6, the Bible says, where does this flesh, where does our propensity to sin, where does that lie in our members? What's that? Our fleshly body. This fallenness. So when God redeems us, he doesn't, he doesn't transform our flesh, right? We've still got that. We still struggle with that. But someday he will. Someday I will not have this body of sin. Someday I will have a perfect holy body and I won't be able to sin. I won't be able to commit an act of sin. All right? So when you look at this concept here that's very important, is that this virgin birth is really the linchpin that makes it possible for Jesus Christ to be our substitute and makes it possible for his imputed righteousness to come to us. If there's no virgin birth, there's no gospel. There's no righteousness. Because even if Christ had lived a perfect life, it's only good for him. And if he and here's the other thing, what this is telling us is that if it were possible for a person to be born and to live a perfectly sinless life, never commit a personal act of sin, they are still lost because of what? The original sin is still theirs. So, Sam, you're...
2: Yeah, um, I, I'm so happy to learn how to articulate the difference between original sin versus the pollution because the legalistic way in which I was raised, uh, such scriptures as Second Corinthians uh, 5.17, you know, if any man be in Christ, he is of the creation, all things are... Passed away and all things have become new. The way that got taught to me was if you're really saved, you don't sin. And so they explained away what we know as sin, they explained it away as mistakes. It's not sin, it's a mistake. And so I, I knew the concepts mm. already that there's a difference between original sin and our ongoing things that we don't do right, and the whole Romans um, uh, 7, 15 through 25 with Paul's wrestling match with the flesh. I understood that, but this morning, for the first time, I now know how to articulate it better, mm-hmm. the next time, and there was... What we'll the next time yeah. when somebody
0: brings it up? The old man is mentioned twice. The, the concept of the old man is mentioned twice. The one here in Romans and in Ephesians chapter, I think, four it is. And in both cases, the verb tense used means that that old man is dead, gone. It's gone. It's crucified. It's gone. I'm no, I no longer have that old man. I have my flesh, which is different. But in the, in, the, in the theological concept, of what Paul's talking about, the old nature, the old man, he's talking about the old nature, is that old identification with Adam. And that is gone. When, when I became a believer, that was forever broken. I am no longer identified with Adam. I'm no longer a slave to sin. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 6. I don't have to sin. Have to sin. If you're a Christian, you don't have to sin. You don't have to. So why do you keep doing it? Well, you got flesh, right? We got a fallen flesh that we have to deal with. Someday we won't, but while we're here, we got to deal with our flesh. But my identification now is with Christ. And when God sees me, He doesn't see Alan the sinner, he sees Alan the saint. All right? And that's not to minimize at any in any way the personal acts of sin I do. In fact, it should bother me even more. In fact, once you what you find is that the closer you get to God, the more your sin's gonna bother you. Alright? It's gonna bother you. It's not a it's not a you know, sin free ticket. You know, I get to commit acts of sin now, hey I'm forgiven, I can do anything I want, I still go to heaven. If you have that attitude, you better go back and make sure that you're saved in the first place. I've
1: always told Carol I was a better Christian before I was saved. Yeah. Yeah. the Lord I knew how
0: filthy I am. So when we go back and, and I, we took a little bit of an excursion around this to try and really show you the importance of virgin birth. But what makes the virgin birth so critical to this concept is without the virgin birth, you don't have a sinless savior. And now we're in trouble. We don't have a sinless substitute. So you can't deny the virgin birth and say, I'm going to heaven. Because there's no way to get there without the virgin birth. Christ had to be the sinless, spotless Son of God. Now that does not mean he was not human. That does not mean he was not human. And, And think about it this way. Do you have to have a human father in order to be human? No. Did Adam have a human father? And he was fully human, right? Did Eve have a human father? She was fully human. So you don't need a human father in order to be human. And here's another thing. Is sin, think about this, is sin an essential component of what it means to be human? Yes. No.
1: Was Adam fully human? Did he start out sinful? No. But Christ was fully human and he had
0: no sin. Right. Christ was fully human he had no sin. Adam was fully human for a little while. He had no sin. Same with Eve. And you know what? In eternity, we're going to be fully human and we're not going to have sin. Right? Now, why why Terry said yes is because... You know, the 40 or 50 billion examples of humanity that we have is all of them are sinful. So we think, well, that's an essential component. It is not an essential component. Our sin nature is not an essential component of our humanity. Because in heaven we will be fully human, and yet we will not be sinful. Our problem is all the humans we know <laughs> have, a sin, have sin because we're all born into Sin. Yeah, that is a trick question. <laughs> but, but what it's doing is, now listen, understand. Weight, right? This is making you think, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. But
0: the reason it's making you think is because it's answering a lot of questions that plague us all. You know, like Sam was talking about, a lot of those things that we sort of know but we've never really worked through. It helps us understand it. Jesus Christ could be fully human yet without sin. Doesn't mean he wasn't a human being. Doesn't mean he wasn't that at all.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No. He could have. He could have made him out of the dust of the ground. But in order for him to identify with us and our humanity, he had to have a human parent. By having Eve as his... Or not Eve, as having Mary... As a parent, he could be shown to be fully human to grow up as a human, right to grow up as one of us, to be one of us, and yet bypass the sin of Adam, the imputed guilt and imputed pollution where's some proofs of the virgin birth lots well, talked about by Luke right? Luke talks about a virgin shall conceive. remember Luke goes in a great bit of detail there about the dilemma that Joseph had Mary's found with child, and now you know every Instance that Joseph ever knew of, the only way she could have had a child is what? She would have had to have sexual relations with somebody. And so it took an angel of the Lord to show up and tell him, no, that which was conceived of her is conceived by the Holy Ghost. All right. Matthew attested, a virgin self-conceived and bear a son. Tested by John. This is interesting. In John chapter 8, verse 38 through 41, the Pharisees are giving Christ a hard time saying, look, we know who our father is. We don't know who your father is. What's the hint there? They ran a hint he was born out of wedlock. In fact, there, there's a new... What was our reading? Fox News or something like that. Some, you know, highbrow muckety-muck come out and said that Jesus, were, or Jesus was the product of Mary's... Mary got raped and that's where Jesus came from. They got a whole new paper out on that. All right. Yeah, a whole Roman soldier thing. Look, folks. Jesus Christ is the virgin born... Son of God. He did not have a human father. He didn't have a human father because it was necessary that he bypassed the original guilt and original pollution. The only way he could be our sinless substitute and yet be fully human without sin was to be virgin born. Is it an essential? Yes, it is. Without that, you have no Savior. You may not understand it, but you can't deny it.
2: Um, because... Unbelievers love to throw certain mm-hmm. arguments our way. Uh, they, some say, yeah, but even if I believe in the virgin birth, the fact that he was in the womb of a human female, um, therefore he must have some of her characteristics, therefore, how could he be divine? And my answer has been: she was the vessel in which he was gestated yeah. as a human being. But yeah, yeah. And when you look at the
0: biblical definition, the Bible says that clearly that the, sin, the original sin and original pollution comes down through the man. That's
1: right.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, it comes down through the man. Okay. Um, that's theologically what the scripture says. It doesn't mean that women are not sinners, but it means that the, the sin nature of children is passed down through the father from their original father, Adam. You said they live
1: from mm-hmm. a biological standpoint where sin comes from the father, but also even through the chromosome design, male chooses sex with the child. Woman has the same egg formula. Yeah.
0: And theologically, the scriptures say that our sin nature is passed down, Adam our federal head. In fact, this is an interesting thing. I don't know if you ever saw about, thought about, but you know, the whole rite of circumcision in Israel—what why, why, was that? You know, and some have suggested that probably what that was is that was a sign that no matter—that th- what do men produce? Men and women produce other sinners. Nothing I do can, I can't have a child. If I, if I were to have a children, I cannot have a sinless son or a sinless daughter because the sin comes down through me. At the very act of procreation, I can do nothing to produce other sinners. God had to bypass that. He had to bypass the imputed guilt. Christ had to be virgin born. And the implications are number one, he is fully human in every way. It's not that he's not human, he's fully human. But he bypassed the imputed guilt of Adam. And also being virgin born and being born as a human being, he was able to understand our point of view, right? Now, can God understand our point of view? Yo, right? Yes, in the sense that intellectually God can know. All right? But the Bible says, interestingly, in Hebrews, Christ learned obedience as a son. You ever think about that? How could God learn anything? Ever, I mean, that's part of this omniscience thing, right? If God knows everything, how could he learn anything? There's nothing to learn. Well, Hebrews is not saying that Christ learned something he did not know about, but he experienced it. Do you understand the difference? It's not that God did not know, but God did not experience. Christ experienced life as one of us. And so when I go to Christ and I go to God and I'm dealing with sin or I'm struggling with a temptation, God says, I understand how you feel because I've been through the same thing personally, myself. I don't understand intellectually how you feel, but I understand how you were because in the person of my son, I went through that temptation. I faced every temptation you faced. And that's why the Bible says we have a faithful and merciful high priest because he understands us. he understands what it means to be a human because he was a human he has to understand our humanity and be a sympathetic high priest a sympathetic high priest we don't have a high priest in Christ that is unsympathetic with what it means to be a sinner he is sympathetic it doesn't mean he excuses our sin but he understands what it's like because he went through it he faced the tests that we face a couple more minutes. Um, the humanity of Christ is proven by his life. How is that? Well, he was hungry. He hungered on many occasions. Um, he got thirsty. Remember, he asked the woman at the well to drop some water for him. He got tired. Remember, he slept when the sea was going. <laughs> Down the bottom of the boat, sound asleep. He suffered temptation. We're going to talk a lot more about this but he was tempted he knew what it was like and in his humanity he became subject to death now you can't kill God but you can kill the body, the human we're going to talk about that Um, we're going to pick up the hypostatic union next week this is a good thing Um, A good stopping point. So, so you know, the bottom line here, folks, is that when you talk about virgin birth, this is not an oh-by-the-way thing in our Christian faith. Okay? It is an essential component of what it means for Christ to be our sinless substitute. The only way he could be our sinless substitute is he had to bypass the imputed guilt, imputed pollution. And the only way he could do that is to be born of a virgin. It's an essential of the phase. All right. Any questions or comments before we close? The
1: last, on the last slide, he became
0: what? Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. So he showed human. I mean, he showed human emotion. He felt abandonment, right? You know, someone says, "Well, you don't understand." You know, God, if you don't understand, all my friends abandoned me. God says, Oh, I understand that. Let's think about the cross. Who abandoned Christ at the cross? All of them did, right? He understands abandonment. He understands all that. All right, well, let's close in prayer and we'll pick up next week. Father, thank you for this time of study. And I pray that um, you would help us to ponder what we went over today to understand it. We thank you for this opportunity. And thank you for your son who became one of us that someday we could be with you. In Christ's name, amen.